Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture show broadcast from Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back with a brand new episode. And this week we're covering Akira, or Akira, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And this is a movie I've wanted to cover for a little while now, and I knew there's only one person that I wanted to speak about uh, this landmark anime film with. Because she's one of the few people I speak anime uh, with, uh, because like I am, I am the definition of an anime tourist, and I and I'm an <laughs> ugly American a Western tu- tourist in anime, and I'm just like, what's this mean? Why am I confused here? Yada yada yada, and this person is far more versed than that and is able to help me navigate through that. As well as she's a great podcaster in her own right. She's got a very successful show. I love that movie, and. As she's been on the show several times, and I'm glad to have her back now. How are you doing, Lisa? Lisa from I Love That Movie. Hey, Tim. I'm doing really well. Um, I'm really honored that you thought of me to talk about this, um, and I'm glad that I didn't, like, scare you away with my fandom, <laughs> and instead you're turning to me to discuss this with, because I, I can be a little fanatical, and I could see how that could, uh, you know, anime fans can be a little extreme, so appreciate that and really happy to be here today to talk about this film it's no problem whatsoever and yes i i have seen uh up close and personal how extreme anime fans could be i remember i was going to a new york (laughs) comic-con it was split with an anime convention and in, in like the entrance way is where like where you would see like oh you go right you go to the comic con left you go to the anime convention and it was just like oh man and it was just it was it, worlds apart and everything, and I'm like, huh? Yeah, in every way. I was I was talking to someone recently where they were saying like, I've never stayed at the hotel of a convention, and I was like, okay, so like the biggest difference between like a comic book convention and an anime convention is that anime conventions are literally 24 hours. Like, there's no going home. There's no off switch. It's all day, meaning all day long. They have video rooms. Um, you know, there's dances after dark, there's hentai rooms, uh, gaming in the middle of the night. It's, uh, it's an intense event and it's a long weekend. That's how I would describe them. So you can only imagine somebody who's willing to go to something like that, uh, you know, what type of fan you're getting. And sorry if you hear in the background, not much I can do about it. There's now another storm. You know, we had a snowstorm last week. This week we have a, uh, regular rainstorm. So... Hopefully you don't hear it too much. I am near a window, so sorry about that. I was wondering, like, <laughs> is somebody rolling a giant thing, like a rollers down a, like a hallway or something, or That's what? That's thunder, my friend. But you know what? It could help fit the ambiance a little bit, you know, of what we're about to talk about. It could definitely could, especially the climax of this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so let's not uh, dilly dally anymore. Let's get into our review of it ourselves. So let's jump into our review of Akira right now. <laughs>
Okay. Now, Lisa, you said you were kind of fanatical about this movie. I know you've covered it before on your podcast, so Mm -hmm. I apologize if you're covering the same ground again, but what is your history with anime in general before you discovered Akira? So, first of all, I'm really excited to talk about this again because I think you probably relate to this, but sometimes you have these episodes where you just wish you could go back and re-record it. I kind of feel that way about this one, so... No harm at all in recovering territory. But um, yeah, so my experience with anime probably started in my teenage years. I um, wasn't like a big comic fan back then. I did like, you know, science fiction and things like that, like Star Trek. Uh, But what kind of drew me into anime specifically was that a lot of the heroes in those stories were women and it's not like I you know I'm like 12 I'm not like I hi I'm 12 I'm a feminist but like I'm, I was a girl so you know I, I gravitated towards stuff that featured girls and uh, in the anime world they would have these like you know cyberpunk worlds and you know fantasy and everything in between and a lot of times the main characters were female and I liked that and so that's kind of how I got into it I cosplayed a lot I was a big fan. It was kind of new over here a little bit still. Like there wasn't merch you could buy. It was sort of a you're in the club kind of thing. Um, I literally ran an anime club at college, kind of embarrassing. But anyway, I guess that (laughs) foreshadowed me having a podcast. Um, But um, yeah, that's kind of where I started. Very nice. And this may be a silly question before I ask it, so I'm going to preface that. Is the anime community more accepting of women compared to comic book uh, community sometimes? <laughs> no. But <laughs> <sighs> I kind of figured that would be the answer. Yeah, you've probably seen, like, the TikTok videos with, you know, to this day, people saying, like, women are fake anime fans. Um, unfortunately, no. While the content reflected both genders, um, the fandom often didn't. There weren't a lot of spaces for women back then. I mean, we kind of came onto the scene and slowly over time it's gotten a lot better um but yeah i I definitely was all my friends that are girls were not also into anime if if that helps (laughs) right and and the reason why i asked that is specifically is because i was talking to a friend of mine and my friend nikki who we podcasted many times before um we covered all the harry potter series and she went to the local comic book store that we both frequent yesterday and she's saying like i gotta find another place and i asked why she's like well because i feel like i'm not really welcome whenever i go in there and i'm like oh shit and i and i all i can do is apologize i'm like i'm sorry that they have such a kind of shitty somewhat shitty attitude towards ladies being in there but i guess it's an unfortunate uh thing you can uh, label against the community like that that's very insular and for the longest time was very male driven yeah there's something about i don't know because it 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 is sort of a a subculture it's like they're fierce about uh you know being the same as each other and sometimes that comes out as like sexism and racism too you know and it's like there's no real nice way to say that you know gatekeeping gatekeepers Mm. um 
And so, yeah, that's something I think a lot of women experience when they go in comic shops. I found some great comic shops, you know, not to discount what she said at all. I completely believe her. Um, but I do think there are good places too. Like there, there's a, a, a place up here called like, I think it's called Madness. And it's like a huge store and they've got gaming and comics, anime, everything. And I feel super welcome there. Uh, but I have been in situations where I didn't feel super welcome. So yeah, I think it's it's something that still kind of needs to be tackled today as well. <laughs> just it just happens, right? And now I bet you a percentage of the people who are listening to to this have just labeled me as a soy boy and a simp, and yeah, and just like, <laughs> and I'm just like, and we're just we, trying to be a Chad. Yeah, I, I get it exactly. And so, if most people feel that way, by all means, I I, I don't care. It's not going to bother me. Um, but when did you first get introduced to then, since you're an anime fan, like you said, from your teenage years, when did you come across this movie specifically? So if I'm honest, and maybe this is going to take away some of my nerd points too, um, the first movie like this that I saw was probably Ghost in the Shell because it was, it had more recently come out because like I probably got into anime in the nineties when I was a teenager you know, Akira came out in 1980, well, 1988, right? I'm thinking the manga came out in 82, the movie came out, I think, in 88 or 89. So it kind of predates me a little bit. It's like, would be kind of an old movie by the time I saw it. Whereas Ghost in the Shell was, I think, like 95. So that was the first content that I saw that was similar to Akira. And then um, I would go to like the international section because they didn't have an anime section. They had an international section at Blockbuster. And I would go and like look for more anime. Um, but I didn't really get super into Akira until I was an adult. Until I really sat down and watched it. My sense of it back then was like, oh, it's, you know, um, you know, post-apocalyptic, cyberpunk stuff. I'm not as into that as I am into some of the other genres at the time. And, you know, it's about these boys on bikes. It didn't really, like, grab me the way that, like, I mean, I'll just be honest, like, Sailor Moon did, you know, or, like I said, Ghost in the Shell or Alita or some of the other ones that just featured more female characters, I guess. And so, in the beginning, that's the kind of stuff that I watched, I think. Um, So I didn't really go back and, like, truly appreciate this film until I was an adult. And when I finally did, I was like... What took me so long? This is like everything I like in one movie. Like, what's wrong with me? Like, it's one of those things. It's like, I, I feel like I found out too late, <laughs> but I'm glad I did. That's it's awesome that at least you went back and you did discover it eventually. But you shouldn't feel bad because I didn't see this movie until two years ago. Well, I feel like, and I don't know if we're going to get into this a whole lot, but do you feel like there's two camps of people with this movie where like, some people are kind of like, you know, they'll just say everything that it is, like, physically. Like, it's groundbreaking. It's visually impressive. It was the first big anime movie. It basically started, you know, anime being coming over here to the West, and it changed the game for anime forever. And all those things are true, but I don't really understand what it's about, and I haven't really sat down and watched it. Um, I respect it, kind of thing. And then there's people that are like, hardcore obsessed love it so much think that it's you know the bible of anime i think you're correct in your assessment there because i was definitely in the former group 
because I was not really into anime. I mean, the only real anime exposure I had was through Toonami on Cartoon Network uh, back in the early 2000s. And most of the shows I watched was Dragon Ball Z. And it's funny, I think it was... I think it was when, like, Boo went through his fourth iteration, and I'm like, all right, that's it. <laughs> I can yeah, only- I mean, Dragon Ball Z is like a shonen show. You know, it's like, I don't know how to explain it. It's, it's one of those shows that goes on and on and on. It has a lot of filler. It pleases a lot of audiences, but it's not like, it's worlds away from, like, what Akira is, essentially, you know? Right. Um, and so... Like, I was like, ah, oh, it's kind of like, I, it was one of those things I kind of grew out of, which I know to some anime fans, you're like, that's sacrilege, you never grew out of that. You're not no, true. No, I get it. I, I, I truly get it. Right. And uh, a few friends of mine have, like, tried to get me back into anime since then. Like, I saw Ghost in the Shell, the movie, the animated movie, I guess, almost ten years ago at this point. And... That one I enjoyed, even though it does, like, the movie itself halts for, like, 20 minutes to have an existential crisis. So does Blade Runner. But that's the thing. I respect Blade Runner more than I really sit down to enjoy it. Mm. And I know that's a terrible thing to say. No, it's not. It's, it's, I, yeah, I think we're going to talk about it a little bit when we talk about Akira, but... Yeah, you have to sort of be a certain type of fan of how a narrative is told in order to enjoy some of this content, I think. And the long-winded monologues, that's like a hallmark of like pretty much all anime. If you can't get past the monologues, yeah, I get it. Like, you're not going to enjoy it. <laughs> so don't feel bad. Right, and like maybe if I like if I was just like sitting around getting stoned and talking about like how we can solve the world's problems with my friends, maybe like those those scenes would grab me a little bit more but like i still enjoyed the ghost and shell movie and as and especially the ending and the kind of somewhat optimistic note that movie ends on and saw the cowboy bebop movie and then was introduced to the show and this is like my friend dakota and zach they're just trying to get me more and more in anime like they're the ones who introduced me to D D in the first place as well um and i i just feel like they are just like Google gobble, Google gobble, one of us, one of us. That's what they're kind of doing with me. I'm realizing this. Uh, <laughs> and I've, they tried to get me to watch Naruto a little bit. But like the one night that I got to sit down and watch it, like I was just extremely tired. I fell asleep like halfway through the first episode. And I felt oh, really no. bad. I love Naruto. I know. And I, I did not give it a fair shake. And I, I really need a sh- Yeah, I didn't know how to, what was the proper pronunciation there. It's it's really good. I will say, you know, I I didn't really grow up watching Dragon Ball Z like 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 I said at the time I was probably watching Sailor Moon, which is just as repetitive um, and full of filler. It's like how do we take this short story and like stretch it out as long as we possibly can uh, and make money off of it? That's kind of what happened with Sailor Moon. Uh, the newer version of it condenses it. And it's more like the manga, but um, so I get that. Um, and Naruto is, it's pretty similar and it's very influenced by Dragon Ball Z with the color scheme and some of the themes, but I don't know. I love it. It's, it's definitely got some filler, but the fight scenes alone, I think are worth watching. 
And I, I just think the show has a lot of heart. And I'm not trying to diss Dragon Ball Z. I just didn't grow up with it. So it's hard for me to go back and like really appreciate it. But um, I, I'm on your friend's side. I think you should watch Naruto. I know. And like <laughs> I, I needed to watch that. And apparently the even made controversial take the even better show Legend of Korra. And I'm just like, okay. Well, I've never seen that one either. Um, but I, I have seen a, at least a bunch of Sailor Moon. And yeah. And Legend of Korra is technically not anime, right? Because that's Nickelodeon. American. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I guess so. It, it's probably still animated overseas, but I think the writing is over here. Right. I'm not sure. I, I'm definitely no expert in anime or anything. So <laughs> Yeah, we are fans, not experts. Yeah. But like if you say like if it's animated overseas, it's technically animated. Then like so many the Batman the animated series is anime. Then so true, true, true. Uh, I think a lot more is animated overseas than people realize for sure. Right. Um, but like, yeah, I watched a bunch of Sailor Moon with uh, a girlfriend at the time because she was really into it, and I can't couldn't remember an episode, but I just remember it was a lot of like the. Trans, not the transitions, but a lot of the stuff like, oh, Sailor Moon's like powering up and we got the big, she got the star, the Tiara and everything. And so... Yes. Um, it's like 90% her transforming into Sailor Moon. Yeah, and then 2% the story. Like, that's not wrong. Um, I I think as a 12-year-old, I loved that part. <laughs> so I, I, I didn't notice it. <laughs> Adult me has trouble sitting through that. It makes sense, but also you can make that same argument against Power Rangers, especially the bigger the team. Sure. And that was kind of like, that came out and I was like starting to get too old for it kind of thing. So I'm not like as into like Power Rangers or Pokemon. Now there's plenty of people my age that love Pokemon and Power Rangers. It's just me personally, but I, I get what you're saying. A lot of A lot of anime shows, especially ones that have several seasons, they have a lot of repetition in them and they go on and on for years and I mean it's almost like a lot of it is focused on the merchandising more than the story um you're just not wrong about that and then there's some other shows that are not like that Mm. but it's like they kind of all get lumped into like one big thing you know some shows there's only 13 episodes or some shows there's 26 episodes and it's it's done it's it's gone um, and those might be easier for you to digest and watch, I would think. Like, I'm really intrigued by Lupin the Third. Yeah, I love Lupin, although I will say I've watched the movies more than I've ever watched the show. Like the Castle of Cagliostro and, mm-hmm. and uh, what's the other movie? Um, There's a few. Um, I can't remember their titles off the top of my head, but... I, I like him as a character. I like all the characters, but I don't think I've ever sat there and watched like every episode of the show or anything. Gotcha. Because I feel like it's it's kind of like one of those shows where I don't know that it has like a a deep plot where you need to watch all of it kind of thing. <laughs> I could be totally wrong, but to me it's like the show is like a great deal like sillier and fun, not necessarily like deep. Yeah, I, I imagine... There's people who probably made lists of like, okay, here are the best episodes to watch in this season and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. Like, uh, like, oh, these are the ones that Mirazaki animated. Yeah, you can just stick with these in the movies and you're fine. Right. I mean, like when, when we're talking about shows that have like 
too many seasons that even I can't like keep up with. I'm thinking of shows like One Piece. Like I never was able to watch all of that. There's a lot of shows like that. But then again, there, like like I said, there are some shows that are pretty short and are a little more easy to digest for someone that's not necessarily looking to like be into the genre as a whole. Right. And isn't One Piece still technically going? <sighs> Maybe. It's too much. I can't do it, guys. <laughs> I, I tried. When it came out, I was interested, but as time has worn on, I just, I don't know, <laughs> went on a little too long for me. Uh, that's fine. But other, like, interactions I had with animation, like whenever I would go into an FYE, you would see the anime section in a DVD section, but, like, you can tell it's anime, a lot of it, because it was behind the 18-only plastic covers, and so, like, most of it, it was hentai porn. Um, yeah, well, that's something I think that's plagued the community for a long time. I mean, a couple things. The stuff that you saw on Toonami was always heavily edited. You know, whatever you got to see on TV was not really the show. It was a heavily edited version of the show. Um, and that, that was the case for all anime on there. And it, there's sort of an attitude over here that's only kind of recently changed that, you know, anime is just porn. Um, and understandably, the stuff that gets here first, the fastest, as soon as, is going to be porn, right? I mean, doesn't that kind of make sense? Um, sex sells, you know? So it, it's like it gives the genre as a whole, like, a certain, you know, stigma. But really, it's just a part of it. There's lots of different content in anime. But the fact that it's not as censored in general is, I think, part of why it gets that that label and then also the fact that there is nudity at all in a cartoon is something that western audiences just have a hard time processing for whatever reason <laughs> so those two things i think are, are why you know it's like people started to label it all as one thing yeah i mean it's unfortunate that animation as a art form within the confines of the western hemisphere is primarily Disney and Looney Tunes. Yeah, I mean, oh man, we, we could do a whole show on that. But <laughs> uh, I I wish there was more diversity in animation over here in general. Um, and that's part of the reason why, because there's so, so much we're missing out on by not having that. And it's kind of always been the case where Disney and a few... Other companies sort of corner the market and Disney often eventually crushes other markets like with like Don Bluth and, you know, other networks. Um, just, they just and dominate so and yeah, and get rid of them. And it's like you lose a lot when that happens. You lose the possibility of there being different types of animation and then any new animated studio that comes in, um, they're going to try to duplicate what Disney did so that they don't go away. Right. If there's one thing about uh, that's true, humanity competition breeds creativity. Mm-hmm. And as much as I enjoy the things that Disney makes, they are the dominant media force in the world. And right. There's no one really challenging them. Like nobody's growing to being that <laughs> level anytime soon, anyway, unless they colossally fuck something up. Uh, right. So. I think you're right that there should be a market for a diverse kind of animation, whether it's like, sure, we had things like Adult Swim where you have 
things like Absurdus from Aqua Team that ran for years or Rick and Morty currently. But I think there's also other shades you can have in between the crude and the clean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like there's, you know, animation is really limitless. You can tell so many different types of stories. So it's kind of unfortunate that animation over here is regulated to either humor or children. And anything outside of that is sort of, I mean, it falls into another category or it's its foreign to us in some way. Um, and I, I'm just kind of disappointed that it's been so long and that hasn't really changed a whole lot. Right. And the, the fact that... Oh, man, it's just kind of like... With the current... Like, I had this thought earlier today. The one thing that could still be made during a pandemic is animation. I'm surprised mm-hmm. we were not in a kind of renaissance of people recording from home and animation being done over like Zoom and everything and new animation coming out more frequently. Well, I think I saw the other day a commercial for Disney's newest film and like Aquafina and uh another actress they said they did their dialogue from home did you see that like the movie's not out yet no i have not seen that okay i can't remember the name of it it's like a lot of people are upset because the plot of it kind of sounds like that cora show Mm -hmm. um oh man what is it called it's like something the last dragon new disney oh wow shoot my mind's blinking right now. I don't know why. Uh... Raya, the last dragon, or Raya. Gotcha. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I saw a commercial today that, like, they're filming some of their dialogue from home. I mean, microphones are expensive. Sound walls are, like, if you're being paid to, like, you can have that as a tax write off if you really want to. That's because that's a business uh, acquisition right there. Mm hmm. I know The Simpsons. Uh, have been doing that for the past year. They've been recording from home. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's like everyone should do that. <laughs> exactly. And I remember, like, kind of like how you were saying before, that people understand and respect Akira, or Akira depending on how you want to pronounce it. Um, and I was one of those people because I've always seen lists and compilations of people saying oh look how so much animation has referenced Akira or look how this movie's influenced things like Ghost in the Shell or The Matrix or Inception and what have you and uh, Looper and so I was put off by this because you have a such a colossal film like this how can it live up the expectations that the audience has built up for you like mm-hmm. when we discussed Citizen Kane on your podcast, I it took me two tries to see that movie to finally see the movie for how it is. And the same mm-hmm. thing here. It took me two tries to finally click for this movie because the first time you have to say, okay, greatest animated movie of all time uh, to most people, so let me watch it. And I'm like, okay. But it was a second viewing. I'm like, oh, I get it now. It's, I think for me, like, I had seen it and I really appreciated it, but the first time I really, really got it was when I saw it in theaters. There was something about, 
seeing all that color on screen and taking in the detail, you know, at a theater and the soundtrack and then the story, I, I was not distracted. I was paying attention the entire time and I, I, it sunk in for me and I really got it that time. Nice. And I'm really upset that when parts of the world that had the pandemic under control for the most part last year, people were able to go see this in the theaters for the uh, 4K restoration. Like, I know obviously Japan got it. I know England got it. I think Edgar Wright oh, says man. like he went to see it in the cinema. And like, yeah. and I'm like, God damn it. What would I, go- what would I have given <laughs> to see this on the big screen? Oh, when when the screens come back or when it's more available, you definitely should. I mean, hell, uh, the day after this recording, they're showing the Fellowship of the Ring on IMAX in my town, and I'm like, sure, it's the theatrical cuts, but seeing that on that big screen would be pretty cool. Um, and I have gone to the theaters even during this, and I've felt safe and everything. And I've take, taken all the precautions I can, so I may mm-hmm. do that. But the story of Akira really starts um, in 1982 that Akira was written by Katsuhiro Otamo and he wanted to create a – it was created for a magazine publisher called Young Magazine Mm -hmm. and it was a manga that was going to be running six volumes that ran from December 6th, 1982 to June 11th, 1990. So – the movie came out before the manga was even finished. Right. It's really only in part of the first volume. <laughs> so, um, and I think it takes part of the first volume, sort of truncates the rest of the story, and then it's kind of like the last part of the last volume, but before it was written. So it's like the complete story, but again, like, after that, he wrote several volumes. So it's covering a lot of ground in one movie. And I think that's, again, something that some people have a hard time with. It, it's a really big story in one movie. <laughs> yeah, and I think, this might give me hate, but I think it's part of the detriments of this movie that it tries to cover too much in a two-hour span. In certain parts, not in overall, but like the certain parts I'm like, you could have you want more elaboration on it. I mean, because the singularity yeah. that happens at the end of the movie happens at the end of the third volume. Right. And, and also, um, that's true. It's mostly the first and last, uh, book, but again, they, they kind of have a lot of stuff in the middle too. You're right. Um, there are some concepts that are touched on and explored in the movie very briefly that require a lot more time and explanation. So you're right. It's kind of like, you have to be okay with the fact that you don't get all of that. Um, and I think when you go back and watch it again, um, you pick up on a lot more. It's definitely a movie that rewards revisiting. And then I would even recommend you know, reading the manga or at the very least maybe watching something that kind of supplements it. There's a lot of great videos on YouTube where people have dissected it ad nauseum. I mean, this is kind of the Citizen Kane <laughs> of animation like you had said earlier. Right, and like I made a joke to you early before I got on Skype that I was literally cramming YouTube videos in, just trying to digest as much as I can so I can regurgitate here on microphone. Um, <laughs> and 
Ultimo, like, obviously cited a, a few influences on the creation of the story. Obviously, the biggest ones being Star Wars, the comics of Mobius, and a manga called Tetsuin 28 Go. And a lot of the characters from Tetsuin 28 Go, like, a repurpose here for Akira. And mm-hmm. when the, the manga was first published, uh, Kachihiro never... Uh, uh, had no intention of doing an adaptation of it. He just wanted to be just a manga and that's it. But as time went on, he became more and more intrigued by the idea of, of doing an adaptation of it. And this is during what a lot of people call the golden age of Jap- Japanese apana- uh, animation. Because mm-hmm. by this point in the early 1980s, Japan had become a such a financial superpower the time that had not been seen since before World War II that there was so much excess income to greenlight so many animated films and TV shows. Like, I think there was one video said, like, in the 1970s, there was, like, 49 animated movies, but during the 1980s, there was over 200. Yeah, I mean, it's like, this couldn't have happened without that. You're absolutely right. And the reason why so many animes didn't immediately copy this after the wake of this movie is because by the early 1990s, there was an economic downturn in Japan. So it took like until the mid to late 90s before animation really caught up and able to do Akira-like uh, animation on a relatively cheaper budget. Mm-hmm. And speaking of budgets, this was reportedly made for about 700 million yen, which... When you adjust it to U.S. dollars, it's about five and a half million dollars. And I know people say like, "Oh, it's one point one billion yen," and like, no, it seems a little extreme and kind of blown out of proportion there. And it's curious because when it came out, it made around twenty-five million dollars worldwide uh, theatrically, but when it was released on VHS and Laserdisc, it made over eighty million dollars worldwide in home video sales. Wow. Well, it it had a kind of limited release in other countries. So that makes sense. Yeah, and it it became I guess it was a cult film. I don't know how you describe it like something as that successful as a cult film or not. I think the thing is I don't think studios understood the potential and I don't think they understood what they had. And so it it took kind of on the life of its own on video because of that. But it's definitely one of those films that I think creatives really latch onto and are super inspired by sometimes even more than like regular fans. They see things in it and, you know, we'll probably talk about some of those things. Um, it's just such an incredible movie. There's never really been anything else like it since. Um, I mean, there have been things that are influenced by it, but nothing has ever been that big again. Um, and, you know, it's... I think that even though it, it, it had a lot of success, I think that it's kind of considered a cult film because it is so incredibly ambitious. You know, it's it's not it's not like The Lion King where it's like technically amazing, but also like has a story that's like easy to digest and a lot of people like it. It's like this story is really big also <laughs> on top of that. So I, I think that's that's part of why it kind of gets that cult status, um, you know, label. Yes, and I know there is 
I, speaking to like creatives that were inspired by this, I mean, one of the biggest creatives inspired by animation here in the West is obviously the Wachowskis. Okay. Uh, I'm clearly huge fans of this and Ghost in the Shell when they made The Matrix. Absolutely, yeah. And I know Darren Aronofsky is a huge fan of animation because a movie I think you're a huge fan of, Perfect Blue, heavily inspired Requiem for a Dream. Yes, and yeah, th- that was one of those things where it, it really felt like... Um, I don't know, that's what was cool about anime is that, you know, you get these directors that are making content that's influenced by people like Aronofsky or Nolan or, you know what I mean? So you're getting like really interesting different stories that are just told in a animated medium. Um, and I that's why I kind of like, I'm like, there's so much potential. We could do that here too. Like, I want to see that. I want to see more of that. I wholeheartedly agree. And it's curious that a lot of people since the release of this movie that a Hollywood has always wanted to do a an Americanized remake of this in live action, which I don't know how you can do that without having a fully Asian cast. And because I feel like if you did it otherwise, I think that would be really inappropriate. Because uh, I feel like this is such an integral part to the culture of Japan that let's. let's What's that? Scarlett Johansson play the lead. And I'm like, mm, I don't know. I yeah. think that might be a misstep. That that was what was wrong with Ghost in the Shell, right? Is that they kind of took everything culturally about it that was part of the story and took that out. And when you do that, it's like there's there's no there's nothing left. And so I, I think Akira, the story is so deeply rooted in the traumatic experience collective experience of japan after world war ii i mean it's it's heavily influenced by that and actually most anime is and to take that away from it yeah it just becomes a completely different story i mean there's it's no accident that the first singularity that causes tokyo to be wiped out is like the atomic bomb right in in fact in the story it's mistaken for that and um, that continues to be a thread and a theme in most anime. So every time they try to take some of these classic stories and they want to reimagine them as American stories, I am kind of against that because that's where this all comes from. And you can't take that aspect out of it because you take out the, the soul of the story in, in, in a lot of ways. Right. Like to put into context to certain people, like you wouldn't want to tell the story of George Washington crossing the Delaware in ancient like Egypt or Egypt or in France, you'd just be like, well, no, that doesn't make sense. That that's not, that wouldn't be culturally correct. I'm like, no. It's, and that's why doing a truly Americanized version of a cure, I think is really a numbskull move. And so I hope that doesn't happen. And how, like, like I said before, like this is one of the biggest budget movies of, the 1980s, especially the animation, like the primary production company was Tokyo movie uh, Shinsha or TMS, who all your favorite episodes of Batman the Anime Series or your favorite anime movies, a lot of them went through TMS. And mm-hmm. you can Absolutely. tell yep. the, the level of detail, the quality here is because a lot of this is they did this on 
ones and twos. And what I mean by that, they did one or two pieces of of art for each frame on the movie. That's why this movie looks so smooth, and that's why it was so expensive because it it caused a, it needed a lot more artists to make everything look so seamless, and it looked like it was perfect at twenty four frames a second. Right, you know, a lot of anime has what they call mouth flaps, where they kind of get around animating a lot of movement by, you know, when they open their mouth, it's just kind of like a little shape. and It moves up and down and things, and, you know, they call it mouth flaps. Um, and the movement is kind of restricted, and, and all that is a budgetary reason, right? They're kind of turning these shows around as fast as they can and putting them out, and you, as the audience, you kind of just look past it, and you're like, I, I understand why they did that. Akira is so different because they went ahead and did the 24 frames per second. They also pre-recorded the audio, which is something that Disney does uh, because that then influences the, you know, how it's illustrated. But another shortcut that they do a lot of times in anime is that they animate it and then have the actors come in and, you know, sync up their words to the animation. Um, And so those two things combined, I think, add a level of realism to Akira that's not often duplicated in anime. Without a doubt. And then they, obviously there's a lot of segments of this movie in slow motion, which mm-hmm. is that requires a lot more animation because you need more frames for that. And it's just, it's gobsmacking the level of detail. And it's like over 30 years later, it is just like, it, it's why I want to see it on the big screen. Cause I want to be awestruck again and seeing it on the biggest screen possible. And I mean, like, it's so funny because when I first saw it, like, I, like when the score kicked in, I'm like, oh, this reminds me of X, Y, and Z, like this kind of score. Like, I've heard this score sampled or referenced and other things since then. And I'm like, mm-hmm. it's just yeah. kind of astounding. Yeah, I think all the elements of it, it's really interesting because as you've already mentioned, the 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 writer is also the director so he's able to tell the story in the exact way that he envisions it which i don't think we get a lot you know even in japan i think a lot of times the manga writer is not the director and so sometimes you lose something in in translation you know when it goes to someone else and becomes someone else's vision it's just so incredible that he was all those things at the same time and um yeah, I've watched kind of behind the scenes videos of him talking about who he wanted to use for the soundtrack and why. And it's just kind of like, it almost seems like he's like, well, I really like this music and I just really liked, you know, what they were doing and I like their different, you know, there's kind of like a global feel to their, and I wanted to have a chorus, but it's like, as he talks about, it, it's just like something just that he liked. <laughs> and so I kind of like that that's what influenced his choice. Um, because that's just interesting to me. It's not like he has like this deep technical reason for picking it, but it fits so perfectly with the animation and it gives the movie a timeless quality because it's not like the movie has like an 80s soundtrack or even a, what we would think of as like a science fiction soundtrack. It's like a whole new thing and it sets it apart from like other movies like it. And again, it, it makes it feel a little bit timeless, I think. Yeah, and I think the fact that it is it's future eighties. And so it's able to be kind of timeless where it's like, Oh, we're going to kind of sure. Like jukeboxes are not run on CDs anymore, but like there are still jukeboxes out there. And 
it's another reason why I think Blade Runner is timeless, even though, like, yeah, the video chatting in that movie is rather primitive, but it still stand the test of time, and it, it really is something to marvel at. And but then you, just, if you go to like the Wikipedia page and you look at all the articles of things that are influenced by this, it's really, really like okay, damn, and it really makes it it puts into perspective how the magnitude of this movie and how this movie opens up in 1988 and when you see jo- Tokyo Japan just explode what you think is a nuclear bomb it's like okay this really sets a tone for the rest of the movie if this is how it opens like how is this movie going to end right and you know i think another thing about this movie a lot of times people are like oh well, it's confusing and too much is happening um, but it really is all connected. It's just that you get that opening so that there's a little bit of a, a foundation, but that's all you get. Um, the rest of the story is told from the perspective of the three teenagers that are central figures in the story. So you know about as much as they know. And I think that's why the film feels you know, kind of disorienting and confusing because you're seeing it through their eyes. Whereas I think a lot of times in Western cinema, we don't view things that way. There'll be like a long monologue, like the monologue that was added to Blade Runner. Um, A lot of context given to us. Um, A lot of anime is told from the perspective of the characters. So I think that's like a really big, huge difference and, and sometimes why people kind of struggle. The closest thing that I can think of right now is kind of like the way WandaVision started where you're just kind of thrown in and you're in that world with those characters and it takes, you know, till maybe episode three or four till you finally know what's going on. Um, Some people don't like that and they're kind of like, I'm confused and this is just weird to be weird, but it's not. And I think this movie is the same way where it throws you into their world and you have to kind of slowly catch up and understand it and you're not going to get the full picture until the characters do. Without a doubt. And I think it's requiring a... This is going to sound so condescending. I don't mean it to be. <laughs> but it does require a level of maturity from the audience and a participation on the audience's behalf. Yeah, I think, again, kind of similar to Blade Runner. And another weird thing I was, I was thinking when you were talking about it is that Blade Runner came out in 1982 and then uh, Akira, the manga, debuted in 1982 and they're so aesthetically similar, yet obviously they weren't influenced by each other. It's just like the collective consciousness at the time was coming up with that aesthetic because I think even, uh, uh, what's his name, Gibson said he saw you know, Blade Runner in the theater and he was like, I have to go back home and rewrite what I'm writing because I thought of something like this. So it's like interesting the way everyone was kind of thinking about this aesthetic at the same time. Just a tangent, but wanted to add that. No, it's good. I mean, like when because William Gibson's Neuromancer didn't come out until 1984, which is mm-hmm. much like Blade Runner and Akira. They are foundations of the cyberpunk genre. Yeah, and some people say to a detriment because I like what was it? Uh, that movie that came out a couple years ago that Duncan Jones made. That's like, oh, it's a Blade Runner. It's like a Blade Runner esque movie, but it's just like. It looks really cool, but the story itself is kind of, eh. Well, that, that's a good point. I think what really sets Akira apart for me and, and, and stories that stand out in this genre is that they're not heavily dependent on the aesthetic. Um, the aesthetic is there, 
but even even more so than Blade Runner, it's it's almost like an afterthought. It's just kind of it's functional to the world that he built. And it's not just like everyone's like got really cool like sunglasses on and like, you know what I mean? Like interesting things to look at. It's like more it, it functions in the environment that it's set in instead of trying too hard to be cool. Right. It's simply the setting and the story plays out like the, the story theoretically could play out like the story of Blade Runner specifically could play out in the 1940s. It would still work. You just change a right. kind of few details about it. But the fact that set in the future world of 2019, um, it, it's just like, OK, we get to explore the ideas of replicants, identity, memories, so on and so forth. Yeah. And the movie, Kira, uh, after that, it jumps 31 years into the future of 2019. And when I watched it for the first time in 2019, I was like, oh, well, this is just... Uh, <laughs> this is chilling. A little yeah. bit. Um, unaware of what was coming uh, before us. and No kidding. Yeah. Literally one year later. <sighs> I'm sorry. It's fine. <laughs> um, we're introduced to... Uh, Canada, who is the leader of a uh, biker gang with uh, his buddy uh, Tetsuro, who is a uh, another uh, dude in his gang that he kind of looks out for. And Tetsuro has a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, but this is when they immediately jump on their bikes and get into a, a fight with another street gang called the Clowns, and a huge action scene uh, unfolds while we cross cut to. Several events that are going on, including uh, anti-fascist protests and a odd child being chased by dogs and seemingly his handler. But how do you feel about this opening set piece that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the movie? Well, again, I think, you know, the first time you watch it, you're like, wait, what movie am I in? Because several different ideas are introduced, like you said, with the protests. Uh, there's a sci-fi element. There's a street gang that's sort of like Warriors-esque, you know, a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of dizzying and kind of a lot. But it's very exciting, especially on rewatch, I think. Because after you get, like, the full picture, you go back and you're like... It's fun to think about the first time that you were thrown into this world and all this stuff is happening and it's so visually eye-catching and um, so interesting how that felt the first time you got to see that. Um, but also going back and seeing it again, you kind of have those layers of, of your understanding of the full story. Right. It, this movie rewards multiple viewings. Yeah. And it's funny, like the... After, like. One of the clowns is dragging, like, no, I think it's one of the other, one of Canada's uh, gang members. And since you told me it sounds like Canada, I sort of <laughs> hate you now because I can't like, hear that now. Canada. <laughs> so I've just been yelling Canada about my house. <laughs> we say it all the time. <laughs> so don't worry. And so my neighbors just think I'm just hating our friends from the the, the true white north of, of us. So I'm just like, no, 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 no. It's not that. It's just an anime. But one of his gang members is dragging like a pipe against the ground. And it's creating sparks. I remember somebody did that riding a bicycle at nighttime. It was summertime riding a bike. But it was a, it was a ski pole. 
and he was dragging across the ground. It was creating sparks as he went. And I'm like, that's kind of cool. Why would I never seen anybody do that before? But in the set piece, we get arguably the most iconic shot of this entire movie where Canada screeches to a halt and profile from like a close up yeah. into a mid, into the mid ground. And I'm just like, holy shit, you feel like it's something that's been parodied and satired so many times. You think that'd be part of the climax, but no, it's in the very beginning. Well, and it, it's not, there's a lot of things I think that happen in anime that like, they don't follow physics, you know, which I, I've seen that as a criticism. Sometimes they're like, Oh, you couldn't do that. Or, or why would you do that? You know? And it's like, well, cause it looks really cool. <laughs> like in this instance, it looks awesome. You know, uh, in a lot of American TV and movies, there are things that characters do that are impossible and just look cool, but we're kind of used to them. Um, and so, like, when we see something from another country, we're like, well, that looks weird. Or why do they jump several stories? People can't do that. And it's like, it's like an aesthetic thing. Don't worry about it. Like, I think him, like, jumping on that bike and sliding it sideways, like, drifting the bike... Yeah, you probably wouldn't do that. But I think a lot of the things that he does that seem so incredibly dangerous and like either not possible or just like a huge unnecessary risk, it just makes that scene look really interesting. Without a doubt. And like you you, you watch this here like <laughs> it definitely seems that uh the creator <laughs> might have something with uh of a issues with um Uncheck the uh, capitalism because I love the fact that there's a quick a moment of like inside a fancy restaurant and a couple is about to sit down and have dinner, but one of the clown's bikes comes flying through the window and crushes one the dude at the table, and somebody's yes. Porsche gets blown up, and there's even more blatant symbolism. I mean, it's it's not even like subtext; it's text later on in the movie about a giant briefcase full of money, but. While this is going on, we cut to a wounded man trying to lead a small person that's like green skin through the night, and he's being pursued by dogs. And it's this is like I think I I, I find really upsetting in this moment when they unleash the dogs on this person. And he has to defend himself, killing the dogs in the process. Oh, I know, poor doggies. And like. Everybody else around them and sitting in traffic is kind of apathetic to what's going on. It's not until the dogs where they're like, oh, this is kind of messed up. With obviously dog uh, uh, food advertisements in the background really hammering the point home. And this movie's rated R and it earns its rating because when the army surrounds him to capture them alive, the man with the gun is not going to be taken alive. And the army perforate him like it's nobody's business. Yeah, so kind of going back to what you were saying a minute ago, like two things. Uh, when you talked about the, you know, sort of anti-capitalist angle or anti-fascist angle also, um, that's kind of a hallmark in all cyberpunk, I think, of this idea of, you know, really advanced technology and society juxtaposed with, like, extremely poor people. Like, you know, just this we this weird classism that exists where you can be somewhere where they're so incredibly advanced, but at the same time, people are kind of, like, living in squalor. And in the movie, that's happening because Tokyo was, like, completely wiped out, right? It, it There's an event that happened. It exploded. It started World War Three, and now we're living in the aftermath of that where Tokyo has been rebuilt. But what's happened? You, some parts of the city are rebuilt and really advanced and some people are doing really well. 
and many people are not doing well. And so like you have all this violence, you have all these protests, you have all this unrest. Um, and, you know, children, Tetsuo and Akira are orphans. They don't have parents. They don't have structure. They don't have much of a future to invest in. You find out later in the movie, there's very limited choices for them. And that's kind of created this atmosphere of just like violence. And then again, I think the violence also stems from living in the post-World War III era. And you can kind of look back in history and see um, that that does happen sometimes, you know, where you're living in a society that's like right, a right after the traumatic aftermath of war and how that affects everybody psychologically, you know, after that. Um, Tetsuo and Akira live in a world where they were heavily affected by that impact uh, of that big explosion but they don't remember it they didn't live through it but they're heavily impacted by it and they're a product of the environment that they're in right and you mean Tetsuo in canada right yeah canada that's what i meant sorry that's okay canada <laughs> canada um <laughs> before somebody's like uh excuse me uh, don't you mean canada uh, uh, do you know who akira is did you even watch the movie yes yeah <laughs> <laughs> I did. I slipped up. I'm so sorry. It's okay. I'm just. I'm trying to save you. <laughs> I do it like uh, way uh, grief. too often. Please always catch me because I'll, I'll do it again, guaranteed. <laughs> um, and speaking of Tetsuo, like he wants to prove himself that he's just as good as uh, Canada, and tries to take out one of the gang members, and he does by pretty much opening up a dude's head with a pipe. But yeah. while being so braggadocious, he accidentally nearly runs into the the seemingly child that has powers who telekinetically blows up uh, Tetsuro's motorcycle. But instead of being um, torn to pieces, Tetsuro survives and there's changes happening to him. And that's when the military shows up and calms things down in the most gentle manners of possible. Not exactly. No. And, and uh, sidebar, uh, it's it's funny that you say like how cyberpunk is very anti-fascist and is very anti-capitalist in general. I did outline a, a cyberpunk story a couple of years ago, and it's after the Second Great American Civil War. And I'm like, because I thought that will never happen. And I'm like, oh boy, ladies and gentlemen, I was wrong. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's... Um... Yeah, I think, you know, like some people have watched this movie and they're like, oh, it's really violent. And, uh, you know, you could, under a modern lens, look at the way that Canada, Canada, sorry, now I want to say Canada, Canada treats, you know, women and, and the other boys treat women. And there's even sort of like an almost rape scene that happens in this film later. Um, and, and you're like, you know, why are we supposed to be sympathetic to these awful characters? But it's like, they are the product of the environment that they're in uh, to an extreme, like, I think they don't have like any structure or anything at all or like any guiding moral compass because of the situation that they're in. Um, so yeah, anyway, just wanted to add that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it doesn't want to, I don't want to excuse their behavior from a modern day society, but people like Canada or Tetsuro, they have no like there's no like they grew up without parents, they're orphans. And so they've only had to look out for themselves, and this society seems just seems to breed violence. 
Yeah, and and I and yeah, you you put up a good point. I don't want to say like, oh, you know, all violent offenders or assaults um, are not the person's fault. You know, that's definitely not what I'm saying. No, <laughs> so please, please don't glean that message from it from it at all. But yeah, I think you know because these characters, the the central characters, the ones that we're the most sympathetic to, they're not bad people, and they grow as as the story goes on, and they have good points. Um, they're not just like, you know, evil murderers, but they do things that are shocking and more violent and it is because they are raised around so much violence yeah they like it's so much apathy in the world and it's funny because my favorite character in the story is a female character it's kyoko number 25 and i think it's because of her it's because of her innocence in this world that is so refreshing because everything is so apathetic that you need a shining light. Otherwise it'd just be really bleak. You wouldn't want to go back and re-experience it on a regular basis. I do want to point out, you know, the, the, uh, kinetic children or kinetic, the children with telekinesis and telekinetic powers, um, with number names is obviously a direct, uh, inspiration for stranger things, right? You've got like 11. Oh, um, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just wanted to throw that in there, but yeah. And I feel like the Kinetic Kids could have been a kids bop band in the nineties. Yeah, it's a different, a different. Uh, the Kinetic Kids are, are different than the Telekinetic Kids. But, yeah. <laughs> oh man, they just like they they can't stop moving. They're always there and they're always yeah. charged up. Um, yeah. And so the army scoops up uh, Tetsuro with the escaped children or escaped child, I should say, and. Because there's no escape, there's no there like there's no way of getting out of here, and we're introduced to Colonel, oh boy, uh, Shikashima, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, who oversees the telekinetic uh, children's, uh, I guess, program. But while this is going on, this is when Canada and his gang get arrested and have to be interrogated, and. It just shows you just how fucked up this world is, where it's just like active police brutality interrogations are going on five feet away from these kids being interrogated for being part of a gang. Right. And and, and also, like, not very far away from them being, like, quote-unquote educated, too. And also, what I really like about this movie is that there's this weird cycle that's also happening in their society where, like, you go from hoodlum to cop or hoodlum to... In the military, like, did you notice that? Because there's like that weird exchange where uh, he says to, he makes fun of the cop for being old. And then he's like, I'm only 25. I haven't even got married yet. And, and to me, part of that felt like, you know, eventually Kaneda's either going to continue down this path or he's going to be a cop. But there's not really like a lot of opportunities for young men. They kind of just have those two avenues, like crime or cop. That's like how that's how bad that society's gotten. Yeah, I, I totally see that. Uh, but like it's the scenes really ratcheted up when there is a suspected terrorist pulls a grenade out of his pocket and he's going to blow up the entire building, <laughs> but it's a dud, <laughs> resulting in getting a sh- ever loving shit kicked out of him. And I'm just like Jesus Christ! And this is like, all right. That's a nice warm up. We'll give him a couple minutes, then we'll really go on in, in on him. And I'm like. You're dragging him on his face. Like, what can he tell you? He's gonna. He's not gonna be able to speak in a couple minutes. Yeah, it's kind of like again. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on in the story, but it's sort of like 
we're starting to see like the resistance that's also happening at the same time. So you've got like, you know, the government, these street gangs, and then an organized resistance that's trying to push back on the government. And I think a lot of that comes from like, well, they, they also give us a brief part where they kind of explain like what's going on a little bit, like what happened and like what's happening now. But you get the feeling that it's like, okay, the government's telling us what happened. Like we still kind of don't know what actually happened. We get very limited information as to what actually took place. And we kind of have to like take their word for it. And I think people are just sick of doing that. It's like they've been living under this sort of militaristic rule for all this time and things are just getting like worse and worse and worse. And so, you know, this resistance is rising up to challenge them. Um, although we later find out like what the military is actually holding back and it's nothing that they could have predicted, but that's kind of what's going on in the story. And Canada, you know, he's kind of a dum-dum. He's not really, he's not very worldly. He's not very in the know. And it's only because he's in love with that girl that he later gets pulled into the resistance as well and like becomes a bigger part of the story. But yeah, there's like a lot going on in, in, in this scene, I think. Yeah, and Canada, he's motivated by primarily one instinct, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's a young kid, you know, I mean, he's, um, he's a teenager, and she's a teenager, too. And I think it's interesting that, you know, she acts, I think, a lot older than she really is, or tries to be more mature than she really is. And she tries to be, you know, motivated by a passionate and just cause. But she's also like a little bit just motivated by a guy that she's in love with. So they're not too terribly different though she'd like to think that and i think that's why eventually they end up having a lot more chemistry because they're both kids <laughs> right and i think that's what it makes the moment later on when k saves canada from a police officer by blowing off uh one of the police for police officers faces with a gun and the abject horror on her face because like yeah she is just a teenager she's just a kid and she just murdered somebody yeah, you get this sense in that instance that maybe Kaneda has seen more violence, so he's not like quite as he's a little bit too, you know, jaded to like really re react to it. And even later, he's like, "Oh, is that the first man you killed?" Which you don't get the sense that he's killed anybody, but he thinks of it as like a bravado moment and doesn't really think about the impact of their action. But yeah, she's like just completely horrified by it. It's like the first time that she's ever really had a huge consequence for being part of that resistance. Right. And he's Canada is able to get her out of the police headquarters saying, yeah, she's part of us too. And the cops like, all right, let's get the <laughs> hell out of here. I'm done with you. And yeah, he's like, there's too many of y'all anyway. Like, I don't care. <laughs> and it, how stressful is that job that he is, that gentleman's 25 years old and looks 35. Like how hard, like stressful just aged him up. Yeah, or maybe he was lying, who knows. But yeah, he, he looked rough. He did not look 25 at all. <laughs> right. And, and as Canada continues to pursue her romantically outside the police station, and she's like, no, I'm just like, thanks for help, and no thanks, and leaves him there. That's when the grenade inside the police station does go off. Yes. And you're like, oh, shit, Like this is like a punchline to a joke that should not be funny, but I'm kind of laughing. <laughs> But and he's also as she's he's leaving, he's like, You bitch, I saved you. Which again, like I'm like, oh, like nowadays we're like, oh, that's awful. That sounds like one of those stories on Reddit. <laughs> but, but I'm a nice yeah. guy. Mwah. <laughs> he gets better though, he gets better. Yes. 
Um, but as while this is going on, Tetsuro is being full body scanned and like all kinds of EKGs and so on and so forth. Doctor Onishi or Onishi, excuse me, um, is just like wow. Um, we haven't seen these kind of test results since Akira. And the colonel is kind of like, that's not a good thing. We should be kind mm-hmm. of afraid of it. But the doctor's like, but the science! He's like, it's so cool, though. I've learned nothing. Um, yeah, I, I think that took me a long time to like truly process that moment. But it's basically like, um, you know, I, they don't create these children like they don't give them their powers they 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 found all of them you find out later and i guess that encounter that he has with that little boy uh awakens his his telekinetic potential and once it's like awakened it's very similar to to akira and yeah for obvious reasons later um that is a extremely bad sign that could be pretty uh destructive (laughs) Yeah, the the children, the espers, as they're kind of referred to as. Yeah, the espers, you're right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like, all right, it's like they, they're on our side, we should keep them that way. But the fact that Tetsuro is showing signs to be like Akira or Akira, uh, the colonel goes to check to see, like, maybe did Akira, maybe he's been awakened as well, because we don't know what is the whereabouts and what he's doing right now but we later find out that the explosion that we saw at the beginning of the movie that we thought was a nuclear explosion no akira caused that his telekinetic and the government covered it up because they were obviously a part of it in the sense that they were studying these kids keeping them all in one place and getting them all riled up until (laughs) until that happened so it's like you know, the, the society, the kids, they have such a huge distrust of the government. And it, it's pretty grounded in reality because they're keeping a pretty huge secret. And a secret that literally caused the entire world to be thrown into chaos, into World War Three, all their fault. And they're keeping it this big secret. And it, it caused so many unintentional things when Tetsuyo did that, you know, it and it completely destroyed their society. And now, like, there's just tons of unrest over this secret that, you know, they don't know what's going on. Like people don't know what's happening, but it's so vastly different from what they probably think it is. Right. And, and to the point that like, there is a religious zealot group dedicated mm-hmm. to Akira. That's like right. having these weird process along with the anti-fascist, uh, uh, demonstrators that are going on. But Tetro wakes up, uh, and escapes the hospital. um, but this is when he meets up with uh, Kiori, his, uh, I guess his girlfriend or just a friend of his. And like they have a really sweet moment there. They said like, oh, we can get out of here. But where would we go? Anywhere from here. And just like in 2021, I'm like, oh, God, I what would I give <laughs> to have that ability right now? Yeah. I know. It's a... It's... Everybody's going through the same thing, so I can't be I can't be too upset about it. But in order to get out of there, this is when Tetsuro and Curry steal uh, Kaneda's bike from the vocation school to where the gang kind of goes to, and where they don't really is another dystopian uh, structure where there's this graffiti everywhere. The teachers willingly beat the children right there in the class where 
but it's not having effect. It's just such it's such apathy. There's like no there's no future in this generation of children. It seems like yeah, their infrastructure is like gone. Like there's no you know they're the only thing they have is force. They don't have you know education. They don't have a, a lot of things that you would need to function as a society. Things are really. I think at this point in the story, they're coming unraveled. And like, that's why you keep seeing like the government, they're talking about Akira and other things. But also, I think they're just kind of like losing control of their own city. And I think that scene is like really evident of that. Yeah. And so Tetsuro steals the iconic uh, motorcycle that Canada has. But uh, while cruising through Tokyo, they're brought to the attention of, the, of three clowns, uh, gang members who chase them, but Tetsuro, not knowing the motorcycle that well, accidentally stalls the motorcycle, resulting in the clowns catching up them and <sighs> beating down both Tetsuro and Karari, and it is very uncomfortable to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think it's not, it, it's just very violent. Um, and it's it's shocking, um, but luckily it doesn't go on for too long. <laughs> right, and thankfully Canada shows up and is able to save them. But like, they're more concerned about the motorcycle than Kiori. Like, like it's didn't. Oh yeah, and yeah, like okay, here's a jacket. Your shirt was ripped off and you were nearly raped, but uh, sorry, you have a broken nose now. And it's like, Jesus Christ. But this is when Tesro starts to go through his changes here and some of the trippiest body horror stuff this side of David Cronenberg starts to happen in animation form where he feels like his insights are coming out. And first time viewing this, I would literally said, like, what the fuck is going on now? Well, yeah, because it, it's, it's weird because there's something psychologically happening to him and physically. So, like, there's these really weird, like, surreal scenes that you get in the movie. But then also later he actually physically changes, too. It's like a real, you know, mind F. Yeah. Um, but the military tracks down Tetsuro yet again and captures him. Much to the chagrin of Canada who wants to know what's going on. But... Later on that evening, Canada is able to see Kay again after a explosion. I think it's a local arcade that got blown up. Mm-hmm. And she, she and Canada, like Canada, chases after her and is sort of pulled into the resistance. While at the same time, uh, gentleman uh, uh, Ryu, who is dealing with. Uh, members of the committee, uh, the committee that runs the Tokyo. So there's even more backdoor politics where the committee that's supposed to be running the city uh, is helping, sort of helping the resistance at the same time. And so it's like, oh, it's very Games of Thronesy a little bit right here. Yeah, I think, you know, they feel that the military has gotten a little out of control. And so they're trying to kind of like backdoor control some of that and then the people on the resistance side they're helping the espers escape but they don't really know why they're doing that right like they don't really 
know what the children are capable of. They're just like anti-government and like whatever they're up to is bad. We got to save these kids, but they don't really like know what they're getting themselves into. And yeah, this is where you kind of see that all these moving parts are happening at the same time, um, that they're all connected. Right. We even see the committee that's running it and just the bureaucracy that's um, overrun in the uh, in Tokyo. The fact that the colonel's like, I'm done with this bullshit. I'm out of here. I'm done with your nonsense here. Like, But it's it's so funny because some people are screaming at the top of their lungs. Some people are sleeping there at the desk. And you look at certain... Yeah. Go on. Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say the colonel is very single-minded. I think he views the first event and this event the same way like we just got to stamp it out you know that's that's the only way we can control this and he sees it as a much bigger physical problem it seems like the other members i don't know if they're just they don't have the same level of clearance or whatever it is but they don't seem to realize like how bad the tetsuo situation is going to get and he seems to be the only one that knows and his approach is you know violence right like he makes his theme very um, blatant earlier on. We was talking to the doctors. It's like, uh, yes, you, you scientists are kind of like uh, people of inaction, but military, we're we're concise and we know what we're doing here. Yada yada yada. Yeah, it's very like in a lot of science fiction, the military is usually like that, and the scientists are always like, "Let's learn from this," <laughs> you know? Right, um, and so. Kaneda is brought into the resistance because he eavesdrops on K and a few others that are part of the resistance. They're going to go into the building where the espers are kept. And Kaneda says, hey, my friend Tetsuro is there. I know him. Maybe I could be his help as well. So uh, welcome to be part of the resistance. Um, but we get more stuff for Tetsuro's experiences of him as a child and some of the creepiest hallucinations done by the espers to him. Ugh, I love those scenes so much. Like, the closest that I can think of that they remind me of um, is in the uh, Satoshi Kon's movie Paprika. Um, that's about people, like, diving into dreams. And so a lot of the scenes are, like, really surreal and creepy and, you know, off-putting like a dream is. And it, the imagery in that... It feels very heavily influenced by this scene, and I, I love it. It's great. It's creepy. It's scary. It's just amazing what they can do with animation. Yeah, and, I mean, the music here is mm-hmm. creepy but also playful because, like, the Espers are childlike, even though they're they're much older, that, like, they've been stunted growth-wise. Mm-hmm. And so, and obviously Tetro being a... Uh, I guess a teenager and a violent teenager that he's able to fight back in far, far more gruesome ways than these, the Esper's word. So like the, they're attacking him with, with a giant teddy bear or a, a giant Lego blocks and everything and shooting milk at him. Yeah. There's definitely a theme of like authority and uh, also like adults being bad. And I think a lot of that comes from like, you know, the, the teenage characters, they're in this world that is completely destroyed, uh, but they don't they didn't get to witness or see what happened the adults did, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that theme is kind of carried over too with these kids because um, they're kept stunted at that like childlike stage because that's when it they're the safest. And somebody who's not kept, un, un, someone who goes unchecked 
and continues to like get older uh, becomes what Akira became and is what Tetsuo is now. It's like once they lose their like childlike innocence and they have those powers, um, they become really dangerous, you know? So that's why they, the little children are like kind of kept that way and why they see Tetsuo as a bad thing. They're like, you're like the adults, you know, you're bad. And with your powers, that's going to make you even worse. Right. They, they recognize that adults are dangerous to begin with. And now an adult has the powers that we do. Yeah. You need to be stopped. Uh, and I do really appreciate that they humanize Colonel a little bit because he does have a paternal bond with the espers. And he wants to take yeah, care of them. He does. And, and they recognize that. I mean, he, he doesn't know how to control their, you know, he doesn't know how to keep them. He, he thinks that they're good, but he's afraid of what they can do. Right. And that's why he keeps them contented. That's why he has them in a giant to- uh, toy castle, pretty much within the confines of the hospital and like all the, the amenities a child would want. Um, and that's why, like I said, like Kyoko's innocence and, and the Colonel wants to keep that because he wants to, to keep her like that. But you're right. The cynical side of it is like, eh, if they're angry, they could wipe out the entire city in the blink of an eye. There is a weird analogy in the movie that seems really out of place, but actually kind of explains it. It's when, um, later in the movie, uh, the, what, what's her name? Uh, not Kira, but K. Kia. Is that her name? Say it again. K. K. <laughs> Kira. <laughs> I was combining different names, but, um, yeah, there, there's a part where K is taken over, by uh by the little girl and she starts like speaking uh explaining an analogy of what's going on and it's kind of weird she says you know um if an amoeba had the same abilities as a person it wouldn't act like a person it would do what amoebas do it would start consuming everything and so um and then it kind of ends there but i think that the second part of that thought is like if a person had the kind of power that a god did they don't act like a god they act like a person like a selfish person and so the theory is like you know once they are no longer like an innocent child and they're like an adult they act on all their selfish desires and that's why having that power is like so destructive um in their hands but it also kind of in a weird way feels like a metaphor for what humanity did as a whole like the more powerful they got, the more destructive they got. Um, you know, referring to like the war that happened after that also. So it's kind of like a, I don't know, like a multi-layered uh, metaphor, but I think it, it, it comes at such a weird time and, and it isn't really 100% explored. And so I think it gets kind of lost in the film. Right. And I, I, I appreciate that it's there to explain what, what's going on with uh, Tetsuro. But Canada is kind of an idiot. He's just like, so Tetsuro is like a giant amoeba? Yeah, he's like, interesting, I think. I like things you say. You say pretty words. <laughs> <laughs> it's like not really not really understanding what uh, Kyoko meant when she was talking through um, through her. And I don't think he knew that was happening either, so. No. Um, <laughs> but, like, it, it's... Like... Seeing people like decapitated and gutted in movies that have been like, ah, they don't really bother me. But like seeing somebody step on glass and then pull the glass out of their feet. And I'm like, oh, God, that's disgusting in this. It's the little yeah, things. That's that... like 
because that's like a that's something you could imagine happening to you you know that's something relatable relatable pain and and your empathy makes you you know think like Ugh, ah i could imagine that happening where it's like a head chopped off i mean i guess that could happen but it's off you know like not really as realistic right but now that tesro's up and about um this is when <laughs> up and about <laughs> but this is when his powers start to really start to manifest and tetro does so by evaporating security guards trying to stop him yeah so like the medication that they take and maybe this is jumping ahead a little bit but as he gets more powerful it becomes very like painful it hurts him physically because he's like changing um and so all the kids they're kind of kept stunted by taking that medicine but if you don't take it that's that's like what's happening to tetsuo is it's becoming more and more powerful but also he's in more and more pain and he's more and more for lack of a better term insane right like it's driven him around the bend this amount of power this this kind of metabolic change of him and like even in i've i heard in the manga where like when Akira is uh, resurrected and it turns into two factions and Tetsuo is like, is like the enforcer for Akira, like Tetsuo is like taking pills by the handful to keep, um, I guess in, to stay together in one piece pretty much. Mm-hmm. But so much like seeing things like Watchmen or even like the not so great Fantastic Four reboot, seeing Doom evaporate people and kill people like that. I could totally see the influence of this on there, but yeah. it's it's interesting. Then we see the resistance pretending to be custodians trying to break in there, and a really cool set piece in the sewers with these hover bikes. Yeah, that scene is is cool. Um, yeah, again, like it's interesting the way that they're kind of like the resistance is being used, and they don't even know it, and they don't realize you know what they're breaking out and what what's going to happen next. Uh, but yeah, I think the scene in the sewers is is really cool to watch. Right, and just like the remarkable thing, just like yeah, take into account like this is animation, seeing the impacts in the water and the waves of like, mm-hmm. like it's just really, really, just for lack of a better term, it's really cool to see. Yes, it's pretty. Yes, um, but I like the fact that when. Uh, Canada saves Kay and they, they're driving one of the hover bikes and he's like I don't know how to ride this thing and he's like oh wait no I think I got it now I got this I got this <laughs> and eventually you've got to love Canada's like just blind optimism and self-confidence like it, it it enables him to do so many ridiculous things in this story that you're like if he had a better if he had more self-awareness I think he would realize like how much danger he's actually in, but he he doesn't ever seem to, and that's kind of like the charm of his character, right? I, you like I can aspire to be that self assured in your own uh, endeavors. Yeah, um, although it, it seems like it would come with a lot of danger as well. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I'd be riding hover bikes and elevators anytime soon. But yeah, or like jumping off of a bike and running onto the street, or jumping over a bike and kicking someone in the head. <laughs> yes, even though it would be kind of cool to do if the time called for such an act, but yeah, jumping off a motorbike that's going like 60 miles an hour and you just start running, you don't just land on your face. <laughs> yeah, but that's what makes those scenes so so fun. Is like that's so impossible, but it's it's so fun to watch. Right. 
And so Tetsuo is, is aware of the other espers, so he's trying to make his way there and just ripping apart every uh, military person in his way and eventually comes across the espers and then we have this kind of psychic battle here and I'm like, I think, yeah, Dark City owes a lot of money to Akira right here. Absolutely. A, a definite huge influence. Like It's like the tuning or whatever it's called in that movie. Yeah, and I, do you know what? I may just put on Dark City after a done recording here because I think that just might be appropriate. I haven't watched it in a little bit. Ugh, I love that movie so much. Uh, but that's when it really, the shit really hits the fan because this is when Tetsuo finds out about Akira and where he is. And, like, all the militaries is like, please stop. Just like, we don't want to control you, but you're, you don't know what you're doing. And Tetsuo is like, uh, He's kind of gone bye-bye, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, Tetsuo is really... Uh, he's as, as that stuff is taking over more and more, he's really lost his humanity at this point. He's got one mission, and it's to resurrect Akira and meet him. But even that changes as he gets closer. Um, then he's like, who cares about Akira? You know what I mean? Like, it gets really... He gets more and more and more and more, like, power and control hungry as it goes on. Right, to the point that he's now flying and he's broken out of the hospital. And this is when the colonel decides to declare martial law in Tokyo and a coup d'etat happens. Mm-hmm. I love that. Again, I just love how all that stuff's happening at the same time. I really enjoy that. I think that's just so smart. I, I don't know. It, it's cool how all that stuff fits together and how, you know, all these different things have such random unintended consequences. Right, and... Tetsuo is kind of like, he realizes, oh, I need some drugs. So he goes back to the old uh, dealer that we saw at the opening. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> That's another weird subtext of the movie is like the amount of drug use. Which is like, I don't know if a lot of listeners know this. Maybe they, maybe it's common knowledge, maybe it's not. But that's like extra taboo in Japan. Like way more than here. Oh, it's heavily penalized drug use in Japan. Yeah, it's, like, not okay. So that's, like, a, another, like, interesting aspect of this film, but also an interesting aspect of most cyberpunk. Like, when you think about um, a lot of those really popular novels, they, they feature drug use a lot. Yeah, and, and, like, I was on a Zoom call not too long ago with a buddy, or a friend, I should say, in, who's in Japan. It's like, yeah, even even weed is heavily frowned upon in that society. Mm-hmm. And so I just imagine that just kind of flourishes a illegal drug trade probably in the nation of Japan. And like uh, Kaneda's jacket, you know, it, it has like a pill on it, right? Right. Those are just vitamins. Yes, that's what those are. <laughs> it says good for health, bad for education. <laughs> But I think this has a like, it has like my favorite like line. It has my favorite joke in the entire movie when uh, other gang members show up in the uh, uh, little bar after Tetsuo's gotten there, and he's just sitting on oh, top yeah. of the jukebox in the dark, like you look like a damn crackhead. And I was watching. I showed it to my friend Mike not so long ago, and he was like, he was not expecting that. So that, like, he was doubled over laughing at that. He's like, okay, I was not expecting that <laughs> big of a punchline. I know. There. I, I always forget about that part till it happens. It is really funny. Right. And so Kay and Canada are uh, detained. And this is when we get the 
big exposition dump for the entire story. Right, like now in like the third act, we have what happened. <laughs> and that's I think that's really common in story in storytelling in anime where they throw you in the world and then like literally not till the third act you really find out what's happening and so like maybe i'm just because i grew up on that watching that a lot i i really like that but i could totally see how some people are like i've waited too long to get this information <laughs> right like i like what i mentioned before my friend dakota the one who wanted me to get really into Naruto and Cowboy Bebop. He's never seen Akira, and he wants to. But like, I preface it like, like I try to explain like, oh, what this movie encapsulates the rest of the manga, or in tr- the parts of the manga. And I said it requires multiple viewings. Like, I'm just gonna say that out right there because I think it's it's rewarding that way. And he's like, okay, and I'm like, I may have scared him off a little bit for that. Well, yeah, that sounds. I mean. I like hearing that, and I like content like that, but not everybody likes to do that. <laughs> so it, it sounds like homework almost. Right. You don't want that for a, a movie. Mm-hmm. But now Tetsuro is making his way to the Tokyo uh, Olympic Dome as being built, or Olympic Stadium, which oddly predicted that the 2020 Olympics that, that were supposed to happen were going to happen in Tokyo. Well, another weird thing about... Like, that is a really cool fact. And then also another interesting thing that's happening in the movie is that, you know, they they want to have the Olympic Games there. And yet, Tokyo is in such horrible shape. And people are in poverty. There's unrest. There's violence. And then they're like, oh, let's have, like, the Olympics here. And you notice, like, on, on the signs outside of it, people have, like, graffitied, like, and the Olympics don't let it happen. Um, and that kind of predicted something that happened later with the olympics right how you know the olympics sometimes are held in countries where things aren't so great and they're like kind of masking what's happening there and uh people are suffering right outside you know where the olympics are being held and stuff i don't know i just thought that was kind of interesting right and even it's it's like it's like it's a mask of like oh we're going to have it, like, in Brazil and everything, but, like, we're not going to say, like, oh, we're not in a complete disarray whatsoever. Uh, yeah, it's like, and and I think it's part of Neo-Tokyo's, like, new branding, right? They're rebranding. They're like, hey, things are good. Things are great here. We're having the Olympics here. And it's like, no, things are, like, spiraling out of control there. <laughs> not to say that that's happening anywhere specific, but I'm just saying like there was some criticism sometimes um, on certain places that had the Olympics because, you know, things were not great in that specific area. No, I, I mean, from the government's point of view, like, hey, we're going to have the Olympics here. Never you mind that there is ongoing terrorist attacks uh, nearly every other <laughs> yeah. day. Right. It's like they're not... You know, that doesn't benefit the people in Neo-Tokyo, and they recognize that. They're like, hey, maybe pump some of that money into us here. We, we need help. And they're like, nope, we're going to, you know, once again, you're kind of an afterthought in our pursuit of, you know, how we position ourselves compared to the rest of the world. Right. Um, but I do find it really interesting the fact that leading up to what was supposed to be the 2020 Olympics in Japan, they... Advertisers did adopt a lot of Akira imagery to advertise uh, the Olympics. <laughs> How could they not? I mean, look what Akira did for them. You know, 
Oh, without a doubt. Like it's it would be foolish not to. Yeah. Uh, but now Tetsu is uh, kind of gone a little. A little war wacky to cut co- to uh, quote Robocop three, but <laughs> and he is literally tearing the city apart as he makes his way to the Olympic Dome or Olympic Stadium, I should say, and he's adopted this red cape. And what do you think about this? And like, how do you see the growth from Tetsuo to a young punk to nearly a god here? Um. Obviously, the imagery here really influences Dragon Ball Z. Um, but I also always joked, me and uh, Nick has always wanted to cosplay Kaneda, and I was like, I'll be Tetsuo, just because I think how f- he looks terrible. Um, I just think it'd be fun to, to cosplay that character. Um, but yeah, I think um, that was a side note. But uh, his turn here... I guess is just like the natural progression of what of what happened to Akira is basically what's happening to him. Maybe at an accelerated level, he uh, is getting so much power now that it's just it's literally like physically changing him. Yeah, and I'm just kind of imagining you with like gelled back hair straight up in the air. Yes, with like because I I also kind of have a high forehead, so I really think. I could do it justice. <laughs> gotcha. And it, it's weird. Like when I saw him with the red cape, I like, this is just me being a Westerner, but uh, I thought of Superman and what Superman oh. could theoretically do. I mean, yeah, I could definitely see that. I mean, you know, in, in some ways the espers are superheroes, right? I mean, that's, it's not really that different. They, they're people with powers. So he's like someone that's really powerful. That's, using it for evil. So yeah, I, I could definitely see Superman vibes with that. And I may have written a, a Superman story when he fought, when he fights telekinetic, uh, a villain. So prior to seeing this, but yeah, it is curious there to see him tear the military apart, tanks, buildings, whatever. But what I find almost, um, I guess it's ironic that the religious, uh, groupies of, Akira mistaken Tetsuro as Akira reborn and decide to follow him in his wake. Right. I mean, in some ways he is almost, but yeah, he's not the god that they think he is, <laughs> essentially. No, but as the coup d'etat is also going on, the, the, the council, the committee that's running the country is like uh, falling apart and the one who is... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, who's feeding the resistance information just wants to get his money and out and get out of there. And the resistance leader is like, Hey, aren't you going to help us? And it's like, no, nah, I'm going to give you a, a, a belly full of lead instead. Well, and he accuses him of, of ratting him out too. Well, I mean, it's not too subtle how the character is designed either. Right. Cause he's designed to look <laughs> like a rat too. <laughs> but, it, it, like, and he has, like, one of the slowest deaths in anime history right there. Just, like, a heart attack that takes 20 minutes to kill him. Where it's just like, yeah. ah, ooh, ah, e, I'm going to walk across the city and still die from this heart attack. Um, but, and the, like I said, the, the subtext is not that subtle where the when he finally does die and his briefcase full of money fills in the air and it's, it's useless paper at that point. 
Yeah, and he shot, uh, what's his name, Ryu, right? Yes. Yeah, and, and so that's that's another big reveal, too, I think. Or you might have seen a little bit of a hint of it earlier, but it's like Ryu's like the main face of the Resistance, but he's working with the government. It's like, uh, just so complicated. Yeah, that like it. I assume if the resistance would win, he would take a position in part of the government. Of power. Yeah, and yeah, and and isn't that what's the problem with everybody in this story? Right, is that their thirst for power is blinding them, and it's very destructive. That's happening to Tetsuo. That's happening to the government. It's happening to the resistance. It's happening to everybody. Right, and there's a a great uh, book on storytelling called "Sealing Fire from the Gods." Where James Bond says, like, one half of the story is the hero going from a nobody from nowhere to a position of power. You think of Luke Skywalker, but you got to think of it. There's a second half of that story where that person becomes too powerful and they descend into a dark part of it only to lead to another person coming back to stopping them. It's a full circle. Like, right. that's, that's what they consider the whole story. And mm-hmm. story like stories like that in human history is repeated throughout throughout time. So you imagine like that's probably would happen in this world where even if Ryu uh, win if he won and became part of a new parliament or what have you, somebody would be coming after him eventually. Yeah, and I mean like this whole thing started because the government was experimenting on those kids and like encouraging their powers to get more and more powerful so they could use them then that explosion happens causing world war three then they start over and they're just like right back to square one they don't really learn anything from that everyone's still just scrambling for power instead of trying to like actually make anything better right uh the espers help k and canada get out of their jail cell and pretty much take over k and like uh Oh, yeah, they say we're going to use her, and you're like, huh, what does that mean? Until you see it later, and you're like, oh, I guess because she was, like, the nicest person? <laughs> yeah, and, Why they chose her. And they, they, they say during that big exposition dump that we mentioned earlier that every human being has the potential to be an Esper. Everybody has the potential to there's be... That, there's that Star Wars connection. Like, it's like the Force. Like, everybody has the Force. Right. But, um... <laughs> Only if you're a Skywalker. I mean, uh, mm, uh, wait, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, it's my biggest. It's the biggest problem with Star Wars. There, it's like it's just, it's a big family feud throughout nine movies. Um, oh man, Tim, you want a lot of tweets, don't you? You want people to come for you now. Uh, I made fun of Gina Grano earlier and everything, and so and I. That's I, true. You did do that. But I killed that. <laughs> the one person who got out of my case, I killed him with kindness, and he just and they just he walked away, and I blocked him afterwards, so I felt better. Um, so. So they take over. They take K because she has potential in her, and they want to use her. Like we're gonna, our three Esper's abilities through K to stop Tetsuro, because Tetsuro has made his way to the, uh, the Tokyo Stadium, and he pulls out the giant like sphere that Akira is kept in, and it's just a bunch of jars of nerves that Akira is dead and he's been dissected. I love that reveal. <laughs> that he's just like optic nerves and stuff. I think that's so cool. Like he's so powerful that they literally he's down to like these few body parts and but he's so dangerous they have to like cryogenically freeze him, keep him under, you know, all that stuff just because he's just that bad. 
Right, because they're worried that he'll put himself back together and become a threat mm-hmm. yet again. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I love it. But that's not the threat they have to worry about right now because Tetsuro is starting to lose control of the powers he has. Mm-hmm. The drugs are wearing off, but we get another iconic image because Canada's on his way to stop Tetsuro. Gets a a laser cannon, for lack of a better term, to try and stop Tetsuro. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Again, I, uh, his blind optimism and confidence where he's like, this guy's literally, his friend's turning into a god. Um, his power's out of control. And he's like, I could just get him with this cannon. I can do that. <laughs> a cannon that's not fully charged, uh, much to his mm-hmm. chagrin. Yeah, yeah. But he's like, I love when Canada uh, uh, confronts Tetsu. He confronts him as like an older brother, not as a person who's afraid that there's a, a, a god in front of him. I know. He really sets him off. You know, he's just like, you're acting like a big baby. You're acting like a big dumb baby. And he is. He literally turns into a baby later. Uh, <laughs> uh, to to my nightmare's uh, satisfaction there. It's like, oh, God. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, you you were not playing around when you're talking about body horror. It is... <sighs> Japanese artists have perfected, like, scary, grotesque imagery, and it is awesome. Like, I know, like, when I, whenever I shuffle off this uh, mortal coil... One of the things that will flash through my mind is the amorphous thing that Tetsuro turns into. <laughs> that I think Nick called it the Robo Garbage Baby. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I'll hear the Don Don with the choir behind it as is he's so epic. Yeah, when he's morphing into something else, but the Colonel's like, you know what? There's one last thing we can use to stop him. The soul cannon, a a satellite in the upper atmosphere that is such a powerful uh, weapon that can eradicate an entire city. So we're going to focus it to kill this one child. Yep. But like everything else that's thrown at Tetsuro, it's, it hasn't worked. And he destroys the soul uh, satellite in the process. But I do like the fact that when he goes into space there is no sound they do appreciate that level of science uh yeah. fact there mm-hmm. but and it is funny like we made fun of uh canada being kind of blind optimism trying to take on a god here but he does take off uh, tessero's arm he does yeah and that really um things get worse after that but yeah he does <laughs> <laughs> so, which leads me to this question: Like, if you were going to cosplay as Tetsuro, would you get the mechanical arm or not? I've seen people do that so well. I don't. I don't know. Maybe with Nick's help, he's he'd be really good at that. But that would be really cool. Right. Like, I can imagine. Like, it'd be. You need a sleeve, and you put that mm-hmm. around a mannequin arm. And then you grab everything to the mannequin arm. So when you put it on, you'll be able to have that on your arm. Yeah, I think a lot of people like have their arm like in a shirt and then the other arm is out or, you know, something like that. But I've seen it done a lot of different ways um, and done very well. But yeah, it's, it would be ambitious. Without a doubt. And Kiori, because uh, she's still in this movie. Don't forget. Uh, don't worry, folks. <laughs> she's still here. Uh, she tries to talk to Tetsuro just like how she was talking to him before, not really grasping the fact of what Tetsuro is turning into. 
Yeah, this is sort of a tragic end for Coyote. And the colonel's just like, fuck it, I'm just going to go up and I'm going to execute this guy. Like, uh, that, this, like, that's the only thing I have yeah, left. Yeah, he's like, this has gone on for too long. Like, we need to put a stop to this. <laughs> right, because the drugs that Tetsuo took while he was administered when he was in the hospital are wearing off. And mm-hmm. now he is mutating beyond his control. Yeah, that's, you know, it's what happened to Akira, too. It's like once that power gets too big, it's like it's scary to the person that it's happening to as well. Like Tetsuo becomes really frightened and scared of how out of control it's getting. And he inadvertently kills Kaori, too. That's what hurts me the most because she didn't deserve that. And like you said, it is a tragic end to her. Um, and I do feel bad for Tetsuro here because he's frightening. He's screaming for his friend to help him to put him back together. But Humpty Dumpty's yeah, not real. Yeah, he kind of reverts back to a kid a little bit. Right. Which he is a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Like, he he's just a child. I mean, that's why, like, I shared that uh, clip, of, I guess, last week of Craig Ferguson talking about Britney Spears when she was going through her uh, breakdown uh few years ago and he's like referred to Britney Spears, Britney Spears like she's 25 she is a child right okay like yeah like most people have no idea what that level of fame and not just fame but criticism would do to somebody right and like I guess this myself an overgrown child I consider myself a win that I was able to successfully uh, purchase oil for the house and everything go fine and check not bounce everything so <laughs> um, like this mean my hashtag adulting moment but the espers realize even with Kay's help like they can't stop him so you know what let's put Akira back together let's see what that, that, oh, that'll help things <laughs> yeah which they do resulting in a, a, this is where like a lot of the flashbacks of what happened with the espers what happened with Akira and I do feel bad for Akira because it seemed like for all the kids that like there, they were just like they were just normal children that were just prodded and poked until they were turned into weapons. Yeah, and Akira, for whatever reason, he seemed like to be the most advanced because the other kids end up being, um, you know, experimented on and studied the same way. But it seemed like the way they treated him was worse because he was so much more powerful, and that's why he like matured so quickly and then brought about that huge explosion. I think they just weren't there yet, but that would have happened to them too. Right. I think that's why they upped the doses of the medication resulting mm-hmm. in their uh, physical appearance. And why they willingly stay that way. Why they're willing to have their powers and their age and everything suppressed. Right. Um, and now that the amorphous being, the, the, the horror, the body horror of Tetsuro is able to be subsided by the... Uh, <laughs> unlike DBZ, everybody saying, Satan, take my power to stop the evil. <laughs> uh, no, Akira comes back and resulting in a singularity. Yeah, again. A, a new Big Bang happening on Earth, resulting in Tokyo mostly being destroyed. Yeah. But somehow K Kanada and Wanda Kanada's friends is able to survive. And the Colonel. Those four survive. Yeah, well, the children decide to collectively use their power to help get them out right like they they kind of make an agreement like 
if we jump in there too, we don't come back, we're going to kind of transcend transcend into whatever Tetsuo and Akira become. But the benefit is that we'll be able to save these people. Right. And that's different from the book because I think Canada is engulfed by the singularity in, in the end of the third volume. Yeah, I don't know. Since I haven't read it, but there there are quite a few key differences, so probably. Um, and so even though the city is mostly destroyed and everything has to change, it kind of ends on a hopeful note. I don't know if I'm reaching there or not. No, I think it does. And um, I, I watched a video that was talking about the the manga and how... They show like the big explosion, but then the, the interesting part is they show a lot of still quiet moments of the aftermath of the destruction so that you can really get a full sense of how big the event actually is, um, which I think, you know, a lot of times in action movies or in something that's trying to like describe like a really big event, they kind of skip over that part. They don't let you sit with like the aftermath of how bad it actually is, which again, I think is supposed to be a parallel to the after effects of a, a nuclear bomb. But um, I don't know. I just thought that part was interesting in the, in the comic, even though I haven't read it, the, the pictures looked really amazing. But yeah, like after the dust is settled and there's a few people left, it does feel like there's hope for a new beginning and, um, and for things to get better. Yeah. Cause I, I don't think, I don't think this is a cynical piece of, I, I, okay, I'll phrase it this way. I don't think this ends cynically. No, I think, yeah, you know, like like I was saying before, you'll find this big, uh, you know, sort of apocalyptic wipeout ending happens a lot in a lot of anime. And I think, again, it's sort of re-exploring that sort of trauma after a big tragic event. But then there's usually a theme about re- rebirth and... You know, I think, again, that, that kind of parallels their history of, you know, after that happened, things did get better. Yes, it, it did. And that there's always potential for hope. Mm-hmm. Like, I think yeah. even 2001 A Space Odyssey, I think it ends on a hopeful note that there is a yeah. a potential for a new step in the human evolution at the end of that book, and uh, book and movie. Right. And, you know, I thought it was interesting when I was watching... Um, an interview with Katsuhiro Otomo, he said when he wrote this, he, he didn't have any other culture in mind. Like he, he wrote this for Japan um, and with Japanese sensibilities and with with his philosophy and his outlook. But it, it really connects to everybody because on some level we all understand this idea, you know, because of our shared history on this earth that, you know, um, after a devastation, new things can happen or good things can happen. I think we all, even though we don't have like the exact same experience, we can sort of point to things um, that have happened in our past that are kind of similar, um, not to minimize what happened at all. Obviously, that was horrible and much worse. But I think that we're able to be empathetic and kind of, you know, see the parallels in our own uh, history and in our own lives. And so that's why uh, this story connects for so many people, even though they're not necessarily directly connected to that event. Yeah. It's the reason why Joseph Campbell's hero, a thousand faces and the hero's journey is so universal because throughout cultures, there is 
a collection, I think it's an unconscious collection of stories that binds all human beings together. Yeah. And I, and I think like, oh, go ahead, sorry. No, I was like, go on. <laughs> I was like getting up in the middle of that. No, go ahead. Sorry. And I feel like Akira just happened to tap into that and it just shows that's the reason why it's resonated for the past uh, 32 years, 33 years. Yeah. And I think, you know, it does it does resonate even more with Japan because of that, because of the history there. And, and I think for the, you know, uh, cyberpunk genre as a whole, I mean, after this movie, like, there were so many things that came out afterwards that were directly influenced by this, but also influenced by, like, Blade Runner. And again, I think because Japan is a society that had, you know, a really big blow and did change and evolve right after something tragic... Maybe that's why there's so many, uh, why they're so fascinated by the the cyberpunk aesthetic because it it is kind of that is a part of it. It's like something really bad happened, um, and then things are kind of starting over again. But there there's some like sad darkness to it. But then at the same time, there's kind of like an optimism in it as well. Right. It, it is very curious the fact that Japan like was always a staunch isolationists and didn't want to change their culture for the longest time and eventually became the futurists. Mm-hmm. And they were one of yeah. the biggest nations that are always pushing for new technology and new ways of bettering humanity. It is just curious that Japan became that way despite the fact that they were staunch uh, resistance against that. Yeah, and also like an incredible, you know, thing to happen after being so devastated by something so awful like you know not that i don't want to say like something good came out of it you know like that's a simplistic and not really accurate statement but in spite of that some some really good things happened is how i would phrase it right that they were able to prosper even though it was such a devastating uh thing that happened to them yeah yeah exactly but um so now that we've reached the end uh Final thoughts on Akira. Oh, man. Uh, I feel like, once again, it's impossible for me to talk about this movie without looking like that gif of Charlie Day connecting (laughs) all those different red threads. Um, It's just so much packed into one movie. But, you know, for me personally, I think it's really successful at it. And it really sets itself apart from some other, you know, more surface level, I guess, cyberpunk stuff. Uh, there's just a lot going on. It's just such a big epic story and I absolutely love it. I love that there's like, you know, a political angle, but there's also like, you know, the espers and then there's also like the class warfare that's happening. Like there's just so many cool things happening at once. And it's really weird that it took me this long to see it because probably my favorite anime ever is so directly influenced by it. The plot is like, very similar and that's i i love evangelion which also has like a neo tokyo and also uh a re a rebirth after a giant you know bomb that went off and they don't know what actually everyone thinks it's a bomb but then you later find out it's something else and it's the government's fault like a lot of that stuff is the same and it's probably why i like it so much but um have to thank akira because without that you know wouldn't have had that other show either well, I was going to check out Evangelion, but now that you spoiled it, I have no reason to watch it. Oh, any. I haven't spoiled it. It's still... I don't know. Uh, let me know if you watch it. I. <laughs> 
it's not for everybody. If you found this kind of confounding, I think that Evangelion would be worse. It gets even more like ridiculous and existential. And I guess the biggest spoiler I can give you is it doesn't end well. Oh joy! <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's uh, you know the last. Uh, I think the the last episode or the last, and, and there's also movies too. It's like end of Evangelion, as in like end of the world. So right, it doesn't it doesn't end happy. <laughs> I, I I didn't imagine it would. Yeah. Um, but where this is strange, it is far stranger. So I don't know. <laughs> but maybe the fact that it's told in a longer form story that I would be into it more because they have more time to dedicate to it. Yeah, I would compare it. Maybe it's like Ender's Game meets this. Okay, and I like Ender's Game. I really enjoy that. Yeah. I really enjoy the story of that. Um, if there's going to be another adaptation of this in the future, how would you want it to be adapted? Well, I think we've talked about this a lot, but because this centers so much on something that happened in Japan specifically, and it's so important to the story, um, I would want it to be in Japan. Um, and I would want, you know, as long as he's still with us, Otomo to have a lot of say in how the story is told, because I think that's why it going from the manga to the movie was so successful. Um I wouldn't be mad if it was animated again, I'll say that, because that's a big part of why it's so good. Right. Uh, I'm with you. Like, If you were going to do it in live action, I think you would have to do it in Japan, and it would have to be as a TV series, like a limited series, if need be. Yeah, that would be a good idea, like, you know, several parts. But yeah, and, and also, I was thinking about this, like, not by somebody that has an ego in the sense that, you know how a lot of times I think, what happens when they take these movies is they're like, I'm going to tell my version of that. And it's like, I don't want to see that though. I want to see, I want to see Otomo's version of this. Yeah. Like I, so somebody that respects the source material and tells it the right way, like the same way that, you know, Denis Villeneuve said, I don't want to F it up. Like I want it to be Blade Runner 2049 to be a direct, you know, connection to Blade Runner, like whoever does Akira, like it should be a direct connection to the source material. Right. I, I feel like rather doing, I'm doing my take on Akira, like, no, I'm adapting Akira. Yes. A true respect. Yes. I would love that. Um, but I feel like this could benefit from an animated TV show an an, mm -hmm. an anime, but like with the proper budget for it and everything, and like hey, you can do several seasons if you want to do all all the the entire manga and i think i think there's enough time in between that of course you're going to have naysayers and say you can never why adapt it again but i think i would not be surprised within the next 10 years there'll be another adaptation of this so a while not too long ago people were saying like oh the cyberpunk genre is dead like you know, when Ready Player One came out and and even um, Alita Bat Battle Angel, people were like, well, you know, these concepts are kind of dated, right? But I think Akira is different from some of those other stories because it's not dated. I mean, you know, the struggles with, you know, in the story like classism, fascism, things like that, they're very relevant to what's happening right now. So if anything, 
this story might have more relevance in this moment as we're going through a global pandemic and all these other things uh, than it would have like maybe five or 10 years ago. I think it's like the one story that you could tell again and, and have it feel, you know, the themes still feel fresh and interesting. Yeah. And my thoughts on it is it's, I'm, I'm of two minds. I am a mad at myself that I didn't get to this sooner but B, I'm also glad I saw this as an adult. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think as a kid, I would have been like, it looks really cool, <laughs> you know, uh, and not quite had the maybe life experience needed to kind of understand what this is all about. Um, and again, it's different from, you know, a lot of cyberpunk stuff is, you know, especially like in the 80s and, and 90s, it, it was like a fear of technology and like, you know, how bad technology is going to get and how it's going to take over our lives and destroy us and blah, blah, blah. And I feel like that fear isn't the same anymore. We're afraid of different things. And so in cyberpunk, they kind of have to shift their focus onto the stuff that's relevant to now. But this story happens to already have that in it. So it's not really about the tech in the movie, right? It's it's about something else. So I think it, it probably translates better to today. Yeah, it, it's... It's very prescient. It was very prophetic, and it just stands the test of time. And mm-hmm. whenever we're able to safely be back in movie theaters again, if this happens to pop up, I will definitely be going on my way to see this on the big screen because I feel like it deserves the big screen uh, treatment. Definitely, yeah. Where you know maybe something like Johnny Mnemonic trying to download a bunch of stuff into his head it feels a little dated now. Like this story is big enough to where it doesn't it doesn't have that no not at all (laughs) um but if people are unaware of you on social media and your podcast uh where can people find you you can find me on twitter i'm at iltm podcast i'm also on instagram i love that movie podcast and you can stream the show pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts just search i love that movie very nice if you want to follow me on social media and send all your mean tweets at me, you can find me <laughs> on Twitter at this is Tim Rooney. Rooney as an R-O-O-N-E-Y. It's also the same for Instagram. If you want to follow me there for all my musings on that social media platform. My other podcast, please rewind the RF4 RM Retro Show. Where I talk about movies very much like this uh, when it comes to anniversaries. And my YouTube channel, Through the Lens Productions, where all my short films are up. Go to youtube.com slash through the lens productions through as you're going through the door or window. All my short films are up there. Plenty of stuff is in the work, uh, in the works. And I can't wait to show more stuff to you guys. I want to say thank you again, Lisa, for taking time out of your evening to talk Akira with me. Thank you so much. Come back next time as we continue to talk about geek and pop culture. And we'll be speaking to you soon.